teammates, welcome to the Journeys Through Leadership podcast. Leadership is a journey. It has no end, but it starts somewhere. And we will explore the events that shape our members during their journey through leadership. Hello again, teammates, and welcome to the final episode of season one of the JTL podcast. I'm your host, Chief Master Sergeant Denny Richardson, New York State Command Chief. First of all, thank you uh, for the tremendous support and feedback during the first year. It's because of you that this project has been successful and will continue to evolve. What do you say we finish out strong, season one very strong, by bringing back, by popular demand, a member who joined us earlier and delivered an inspiring message? Major General Timothy Labarge, New York Air National Guard Commander, Assistant Adjutant General. Welcome, sir, and thank you for taking the time to join us again. Chief, it's great to be back here again. Uh, you and I started this thing uh, uh, oh, probably about a year or so ago, and it was, uh, it was intriguing. I was very intrigued by the, the concept, and uh, I'd never done anything like that before, and it's interesting how you, when you get into it, you start wondering, you know, <laughs> did people like the message? How many likes did I get? How many, <laughs> how many people responded? And uh, you, it's curiously compelling, yes. <laughs> uh, but it certainly is a, a great uh, vehicle, and congratulations on it. On a successful first season, I'm glad to be back and honored to be back. Thanks yeah. for asking me. Yes, yeah, sir. Thank you very much. And um, and for the record, um, you're still number one as far as the downloads are yeah, concerned. Write that down. I want to use that on my OPR. Right? <laughs> you're, you're beating out Colonel Donaldson. <laughs> <laughs> so, albeit uh, this time, um, it's under different circumstances, sir. Um, as you have announced uh, your retirement uh, after nearly 39 years of dedicated service to our nation and our community. I'm honored to have you here, sir. And um, are you ready to kick this off? Yeah, certainly. All Chief, right. Thanks again. All right. No problem, sir. So, man, nearly 39 years. Uh, you know, how, how fast did that go? Uh, it's a curious dynamic. It it really seems like 39 years, and it also seems like 39 days. Mm-hmm. It, that seems trite, uh, but in fact, it feels like a long career, but I feel like I can remember every day of it. And it doesn't seem like that long ago. I don't feel much different. Uh, I hope that's a good thing, but uh, <laughs> it, it's very trite, mm. but it went by fast. And at the same time, it seems like I've experienced a lot uh, collectively in those 39 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I, um, I agree. Um, I've been in for 32 years and um, I can remember, you know, my first day of enlisting and mm-hmm. uh, the feeling that I had, yep. um, you know, and you're absolutely right, sir. Um, you know, it just seems like those memories are still vivid, um, you know, within our memories and um, when we first raised our hand uh, to enlist. Um, uh, so how old were you when you enlisted? So 22, just just out of college. Right. Uh, I went from college right into the officer's training school. And, and to your point about the vivid memories, 100% true. I, I can remember... That, that first day in Syracuse, New York, down at the federal building down there and, and going through the entry physical. And I distinctly remember thinking, what was I thinking in doing this? <laughs> and, uh, and I distinctly remember thinking, just keep w- putting one foot in front of the other. Hmm. I don't know where I'm going. I don't come from a military family. Uh, and uh, I had very limited experience with aviation or the military, but I knew that I wanted to try it. And I just kept thinking, just just keep just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Just, just keep, just keep going. Um, there was a significant amount of cultural shock mm. that we all experienced when we first go to basic training, or in my case, officers training school. And I watched a lot of my classmates, or maybe not a lot, but a significant number, just kind of give into the culture shock and leave rather abruptly and rather quickly. Mm. And and I remember thinking, just hang in there. 
get through the cultural shock piece, mm-hmm. get through the loneliness, get through the, the, the change in your life and, and, and don't make an irrational decision here. Mm-hmm. Make an informed decision. Give this some time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I needed to keep the end state in mind. I was looking for Air Force wings. And that's about as far as my horizon went at that point. Uh, and, um, but I also knew that I, that it was going to be a great job. And I really wasn't thinking career at that point, but I knew it had the potential to be a great career, Hmm. but I had just, just keep going, keep the end state in mind. I'm glad that I did because to your point in the last 39 years, um, I've covered all seven continents. I've covered well over 50 countries, uh, been all 50 states. About 6,000 flying hours. And I say, you know, if I was to put this together in a, in a convenient little bullet talking point, I'd say I've been from Ankara to Auckland, from Alaska to Afghanistan, from Bogota to Bucharest, from Hawaii to Hiroshima, from Kangalooswak, where you and I have both been, yes. to Kansas, from Pakistan to Paris, and from the North Pole to the South Pole. And it's, uh, it's just been, it's been incredible. Uh, and, and I've seen, the sites, you know, that, that you read about in, in the history books and in the encyclopedias. And I've been fortunate enough to, to spend, in some cases, a lot of time in some of those places, in some cases, kind of a fleeting visit. You know, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, the, the pyramids of Egypt were just were shocking. When you see those, you, it's almost like, whoa, those are the pyramids. Hmm. And, and, and there they are. And you, you go up and you go... How in the world did they build those things? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and you know the the deserts of the Middle East are just stunningly beautiful. The jungles of Central and South America, uh, the great snow plains that you and I've seen in the Arctic and Antarctic plateaus—they're yes. they're almost indescribable in their beauty and their austerity. Mm-hmm. Uh, just fantastic. Um, the glaciers of Greenland and New Zealand. New Zealand is just a spectacularly beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have flown combat and combat support, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Iraqi Freedom, Enduring Freedom. And I have vivid memories, very vivid memories of all those places, of all those contingencies, but mostly of, of all the, the people that, mm-hmm. that I've been with there. And those experiences, those missions, those people, those places, um, they've helped me grow up and become a man, become an adult. And, but more importantly, after 39 years, and as I'm approaching 61 years old, hopefully it, it informed and influenced my development as a leader. Mm-hmm. All those experiences, all of that travel, all of that exposure to other people, to other places, to other cultures, to other governments, to other ways of thinking, hopefully it led for people like you and me, uh, to a far greater understanding of the people that we share this planet with. And, and that, if it works, leads to uh, a greater empathy for those people. Uh, it will engender, hopefully, altruism. And hopefully, it will increase our collaboration and cooperation with the people all over the planet. And if we're lucky, sometime posterity will benefit from that and maybe we get to the point eventually hmm. where we can resolve our differences without hurling hot pieces of metal at one another. Yes. And that, that hopefully that that travel and those experiences over 39 years have gotten us there. Wow. Some really vivid memories, though, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for sharing that. So um, uh, you said you're 61 years old? I will be in March. Yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. you don't look it. <laughs> 
Well, there, see, you're my, you always were my favorite, Chief. Yeah, see, you know, <laughs> you don't look a day over fifty-two. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take oh it. man, outstanding, sir. Thank you for sharing that. So, um, as I was listening to you speak, um, it brought to mind a um a quote um, that I would like to share with you right now, and I want to give you something that you can take away with you as well. Um, and so, hopefully, your you know this quote will help you take something away. And uh, this quote was by um, O.J. Bergantz. Um, O.J. Bagansa, of course, you know him from Baltimore. I'm a huge Baltimore fan, uh, Baltimore Ravens fan. And uh, O.J. Bagans was a linebacker uh, for the Baltimore Ravens. He was on their 2000 uh, Super Bowl team. Uh, he was uh, his career was uh, cut short by ALS, ALS, mm-hmm. um, which we uh, know as a Lou, Lou Gehrig's Gehrig, disease. Sure, yes, sir. Yep. <clears throat> um, but even though it, it took his plan days away from him, it did not take his will or his spirit. Mm-hmm. And he continues to be an inspiration to so many. Uh, so the quote from uh, O.J. Bagans is, the true litmus test of our worth will not be the number of days we lived, mm. but the number of lives we impacted with the time we were blessed to live. Awesome. So, yeah. sir, I want you, um, when you have the time, when it, when it slows down for you, I just want you to, to reminisce um, and just think about the, the amount of lives that you have impacted in your, during your 39-year career. And I'm sure it would be profound. Well, Denny, that, that's an awesome quote, by the way. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 it speaks to the fact that in the end, uh, when we look at this, this whole thing, that people don't really care what you do. They don't care what your job is, what your title is, how many stars or stripes you wear. They don't care what kind of a car you drive or how big of a house you live in. They care who you are as a person. Yes, sir. And uh, <clears throat> that's what matters uh, in, in the, as we look in the prism of our back or review mirror. So. Yes, sir. I agree. Yeah. So 22 years old. So when you look back, what would you tell that 22-year-old kid today? Well, Macaulay Culkin in uh, Home Alone said, uh, this is it. Don't be afraid now. <laughs> uh, and I would say, uh, buckle up. Hmm. Uh, 22 year old, you're in for a lot of change and don't be afraid of it. You know, don't be afraid. Like my colleague Colk said, you got to embrace it. So I joined in 1983 and, you know, we've hinted at, you and I've talked about some of this before, but you know, uh, I hate to say, you know, back in the day when the earth was cooling and all that stuff, but, uh, <laughs> back in 83, uh, th- there were no cell phones. Um, there were no self-driving cars. There was no, um, uh, internet, there was no social media. There were no laptop computers. There were no home computers. And today, those things are not only hallmarks of our industry. Everybody above the age of eight has much of that in their mm. pocket yes. today. It, it's just been an enormous amount of change, you know, innovation and change and cultural change. Um, so I would say be ready for lots and lots of change mm-hmm. and, and embrace it. Because it's going to steamroll you one way or the other, so to, so benefit from it. Uh, I would say that you know, in terms of affect and, and approach to life and to your career, I would say uh, to that twenty-two-year-old, be quietly confident mm-hmm. and outrageously competent. Um, don't be overconfident, because sometimes overconfident uh, and brash overconfidence can kind of spook the herd. It can be uh, conflated with arrogance. Uh, but outrageous competence should never spook the herd. It should engender outrageous respect. Mm. Um, I think I would say effort to make your organization and your boss look good because the entire organization looks good when, when, you, when, you, make, when you effort for the organization and for your superiors. Um, 
approach your job and your organization with humility, not hubris. Hmm. Um, learn from the good leaders and from the more challenged leaders. You can learn a whole lot from the more challenged leaders. You can, you can, uh, you can think, how did that make me feel? How did that benefit the organization? Did that dressing down that I got, was that deserved? Did it benefit me? Did it benefit the people around me? Or was it a net negative? And, and you know, how would I deal with that when I'm in charge? Um, and I, I usually say this at the end, but uh, uh, don't be an ass. Um, so there's a pretty good podcast out there by Ryan Leaf. So Ryan Leaf was a uh, top NFL prospect drafted, I think, in 1998 by the mm-hmm. San, Diego San Diego Chargers. Chargers yes, and he went to Seattle and went mm-hmm. to Dallas. And he's got a great podcast out there called Bust, B-U-S-T, Bust, because that's what his career was. I'm, I'm not saying that, by the way. It, he's saying it. Mm-hmm. And he had some significant challenges. Uh, not the least of which was the way he approached people and the way he approached life and, and his attitude and his affect. And um, it wasn't good. And he uses some rather colorful language to explain that. But it can be filtered down to don't be an ass. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's an interesting, uh, compelling podcast by, mm-hmm. by Ryan Leaf. That, oh. that, and that's what I would tell people. Be, you know, be confident, but don't be overconfident. Mm-hmm. Approach it with humility, not hubris. Mm-hmm. And uh, be outrageously competent. But be quiet in your competence, mm-hmm. and, and people will notice, and, and opportunities will come your way, and the organization will benefit. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, sir. I uh, appreciate that. Um, um, a powerful message um, in your response uh, to that question. So um, one thing that I want to take away from that is the um, embrace the change, mm. uh, you know, because a change, one thing we can depend on today uh, is change. Uh, change is a constant. Um, and it's the members like yourself, it's the leaders like yourself that's able to embrace the change and make it work, you know, for your benefit and for the benefit of the organization that are able to survive. Uh, the folks that resist that change, they struggle. They're the ones that have a, they have a tough time. Uh, so I think that's a, an extremely important, important message to our listeners today. It can be tough. You know, change is difficult. People tend to resist change because they kind of get into the rhythm. They kind of figure out what's important to them and, and how they, they navigate the daily uh, toils and tribulations. And, and so change can, can be difficult, yes. for, but if, if you don't embrace it, who would have thought just even a decade ago that, that you and I could walk out here and watch a car drive by with, with, with nobody in it, nobody <laughs> driving, that we've got um, re- not only remotely piloted aircraft, but automated you know, aircraft. We are going to be seeing in our lifetimes uh, aircraft probably flying across the North Atlantic tracks, unmanned, delivering cargo. We are going to see direct theater delivery via space, you know, from the United States to somewhere in an in a, in a Indo-PACOM or UCOM or a CENTCOM theater through space, and it's going to take 90 minutes or less. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Yes, yeah, uh, it is, sir. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, all right. Thank you for that, sir. Uh, greatly appreciate it. So, uh, let's talk about regrets. Uh, any any regrets? <laughs> you know, uh, hopefully not. Uh, I I don't know if this is an underpinning of my philosophy, but I I I try not to live with regrets. I try not to look back and say coulda, shoulda, woulda. Hmm. It, it, it doesn't do any good to do that, unless to inform your approach going forward. Though, oops, I'll do that differently last time. So I don't find a lot of utility in in the backwards looking. I got regrets approach because it leads to hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth, which I think there's not a lot of utility in. However, however, (laughs) having said that, if I had to do it again, uh, the one thing that I would probably do differently would be to more, um, I'll say this delicately, optimize the time and distance calculations relative to where I live and where I work. (laughs) Um, For 16 years, uh, uh, I've been a geographic bachelor. First starting out at the Pentagon 
and then uh, at Latham, then over to 109th here in Schenectady, then mm-hmm. down to Newburgh, then back to Latham. And the whole time, my wife and family have been living about two and a half hours north of here in the Adirondacks. Uh, my wife has had a wonderful career, and, and I, I wouldn't ask her to uh, have abandoned that career because of my aspirations. Uh, we had kids in school up there, and I have grandkids in school up there, so we're pretty rooted up there. So the answer was, if I wanted to continue to progress, was to become a geographic bachelor, and that ain't easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was my choice. We could have done it differently. We could have uprooted the family and my wife and and and, uh, and settled somewhere else, a little bit more centrally located, but we didn't. And uh, again, I don't have any regrets, but it probably was not, at least from a time and distance calculation, um, not the optimal solution. <laughs> but we all choose to live where we live. Mm-hmm. And you've got a bit of a commute. It's not outrageous, but right. you spend a fair amount of time in your car every yes, day. Sir. And and, uh, um, and part of the nature of that is that we're moving around mm-hmm. um, to different, you know, and it was difficult to to pinpoint exactly where I was going to end up with any degree of confidence. And the more you progress, the more your talents are needed and moved. And, and, and I felt that wherever my leadership thought that I would be of greatest utility, then that's where I was willing to go. And my wife was a tremendous and continues to be a tremendous supporter of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, God bless her. Yes. Um, but 16 years of geobatching takes a toll. And it takes a constant effort to stay focused yes. and in a positive mindset. Uh, one time, one time, I started to do the, the calculations as I'm driving down Route 87 going, well, this many days, this many hours. And I didn't get too far into that before I said, oh boy, I, don't, I do not want to know that number. And because what, what are you going to do? Right. You know, you either decide to, uh, to stop doing that or you mm-hmm. say, well, I'll lock it in the back of my mind and I won't look at that mm-hmm. until I retire. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only one. Who's, who's got to do those calculations and the, the people that are doing it, we, we kind of giggle about it. And it's either that or, or you, you take a very dark perspective on it. I wouldn't have planned it that way. Uh, but according to John Lennon, life is what happens when you're busy making plans. Mm-hmm. And life happened. And, and the opportunities came my way. And I'm very, very grateful for those opportunities and the people who gave me those opportunities. Um, but life happens. Don't fight it. And, but don't live with regrets. And if it's too much to handle, then change it. Yes. Then do something different. Move or find a different job or something. Mm-hmm. And but uh, but no regrets. Mm-hmm. But I would probably be a little bit gooder <laughs> with the time and distance calculations <laughs> <laughs> relative to where I live and where I work. Uh, yes, sir. So uh, <laughs> so you bring up um, a good point about the uh, the sacrifices uh, that our families uh, mm-hmm. make. Um, so that we can serve our country, and um, you know, your family has made a uh, has made that sacrifice of not having uh, you home, you know, on a, a continuous basis for the last sixteen years. So I want to take this opportunity right now uh, to um, to thank your family uh, for sharing you with us, um, you know, especially uh, your your lovely wife Petra. Um, you know, you owe her a lot of uh, jewelry. Yeah, yeah, well, working on it. <laughs> By the way, I saw Michelle last night and I picked it up, right. so I'm good. <laughs> All right, sounds good, sir. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. So, uh, You don't get to this point, 39 years, without having some uh, lessons learned. Uh, so um, any that uh, come to mind? Uh, several, <laughs> uh, but lessons learned. Uh, I'm, I'm going to channel Dylan Thomas, who was a Welsh poet. So do not go gently into that great night. Mm-hmm. And so what do I mean by that? Um, be assertive. Lessons learned, be assertive. Protect your agency's equities and interest. Be a powerful advocate. Know where you're going and what's necessary for your organization. And don't be shy. Don't go greatly into that. Don't go gently into that great night. 90% of the battle 
is just showing up. So you got to show up and you got to, you got to fight. You got to be a fighter. Uh, and I've said this before, don't just show up and steal somebody else's oxygen, you know, fight for what you're doing. And, and, um, I learned that early on in my days in business and at the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. So at the Pentagon, you know, we're in a resource constrained environment Mm -hmm. and there simply isn't enough to give everybody exactly the airplanes and the equipment and the people and the control grades and everything that you need. That's why we have programmers because programmers match up resources with requirements. But by definition, there's more requirements than there are resources. Yes. And the programmers are very, very good at this, and they've got a very, very difficult job. But when you're working in the programming world, and when I was down there, I worked in A8X, um, matching up resources and requirements. The programmers, sometimes they'll float a trial balloon, and they'll kind of say, hey, Tim, we're going we're gonna to take this. Mm-hmm. We're going to hold something that you have at risk. We're going to grab equipment or manpower or resources or funding because we need it over here. And then there's kind of a pregnant pause. Uh, and, and they're, they're kind of, um, in my estimation, they're, they're, they're testing the waters to see what kind of a response they get. If they get a tepid response or no response, then trust me, your resources, your manpower, and your equipment is gone before you can say Bob's your mm-hmm. uncle. It's gone. Uh, because they're kind of looking to see, is this important to General LaBarge and New York? And the 174th or the 109th or the 105th or the 106th or the 107th or EADS, is it important? And if it is, you damn well better fight for it. Yes. Now, you know, not in a, in a confrontational negative way, but in a passionate and informed way. And um, so you got to fight for your equities. You have to be prepared with your narrative. Your elevator speech, when you get the chance to see the two, the star, the three star, the four star, you say, hey, sir, can I, t- can I talk to you for a minute? And they don't have a lot of time. So you got to be able to articulate quickly what the requirement is, how you've got the most optimal answer to that, and how, you know, the proposal would, in, would endanger the most efficient response, not only for you, but for the agency and for the, the DOD writ large. So you have to be prepared. You have to be informed. You got to be passionate. Um, not crazy hair on fire, teeth on fire, passionate, but, but passionate. And you've got to be able to defend your position with data and a narrative. Uh, and, and Bob Noth, uh, no, I think it was my friend, Tony Basil, who once told me this. He said, Tim, keep your teeth in their pant leg. Um, <laughs> and, and I would say that, uh, that if somebody wants to come to New York and pay their bills with our equity, they need to know that there's going to be a fight and a cost to that. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's our job as senior leaders to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean when I say, um, don't go gently into that great night. You know, we did this with MQ nines when, when, uh, Tony Basil and, and, uh, and myself and Kevin Bradley and others were fighting for MQ nines at Syracuse. They tried to program those things away. And, and, um, and I, uh, happened to run into the four star general Johns, Believe it or not, in the Pentagon outside of a, outside of the bathroom one day, and I said, "Sir, you got just a minute." And we had a very, very good conversation. It didn't last but a couple of minutes, but there came to a mutual understanding. Uh, I was ready for the conversation. Mm-hmm. They wanted us to establish a formal training unit at the one seventy fourth. Great idea. We were well prepared to do that, but they wanted us to take that out of hide. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying we're glad to stand up that formal training unit, and we think we would be great at it. However. 
you know, if the manpower requirement before the FTU was 385, the manpower after the FTU is 385 plus whatever it takes to run the FTU. But they would, if I hadn't said anything, and Kevin Bradley and I worked a lot on this particular issue, um, they'd have been glad to l- just let us take it out right. of hide and figure it out. Yeah. Um, C-17s with extended range tanks. When I left here and went to the 105th, I saw a great need for C-17s for extended range tanks in the, at the 105th and the Air National Guard. There were none outside of Memphis who they got brand new airplanes. Um, excuse me, Jackson, Jackson. Um, so I made the case again to General Johns, who was the commander of Air Mobility Command at the time, saying, this is why if you put extended range tanks in the Air National Guard, it will benefit all of us, including Air Mobility Command. So mm-hmm. we, we worked hard for that. C-130Js for the 106, mm-hmm. took us about 10 years to get those. The 222nd Combat Control Squadron over at the Eastern Air Defense Sector. Bob Knopf and, and his, his ilk pretty much made that up out of whole cloth. But there was a requirement for the 222nd Combat Control Squadron in a partnership with the National Reconnaissance Office that, um, and, and General Knopf said, we can meet that requirement and we can meet it effectively and efficiently. Mm-hmm. And, and, and off he went with Timmy Lundeman and, and uh, Don Hudson and, um, and a bunch of others and, and that I got involved in that to help stand up the, uh, the 222nd, a, a fantastic organization to yes. this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Shields has been fantastic with Milcon uh, for Jamaica Armory, uh, $91 million worth of Milcon to, to rehab the Jamaica Armory. And of course, we're passionately going after LC-130Js yes. for the 109th now. So mm-hmm. all of that and many, many other conversations were a fight, mm-hmm. not in a bad way, but in a natural way. It's how you do business in a resource constrained environment. And I would tell the lessons learned are don't shy away from that. If you, if you can't get in the arena and have that fight in an effective way, then you're, you're going to be overmatched. Um, and if nothing else, don't go gently into that great night. Yes. Wow. (laughs) A lot of lessons in that. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to highlight a couple of things that you uh, just talked about, sir. Um, and the first thing is, um, know where you are going. Um, and to me, that that's huge. Um, and, uh, you know, you have done an um, awesome job at that. And, you know, it's all about defining clarity. Um, and how do we define clarity? Uh, we do that by defining reality and creating hope. Um, you know, and, mm-hmm. that, you know, when I see and hear you speak about all the things and where the New York Air National Guard was and where we are today, you know, you created, created that hope. You know, and as a leader, we have to have that vision. We have to be able to see it, not just five years, you know, but 10, 20 years, you know, um, ahead of the folks that we're leading. Um, and that's a big part of defining that clarity. So uh, and then the other thing is, is that you talk about that elevator speech um, and being prepared that, you know, so that when you um, see when you see that opportunity, you have to be ready to see you sure do. that yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me of another quote um, by um, uh, Chappie James. Um, from his book and it's actually a quote from his mother and what his mother told him because um, his mother was an educator um, you know and you know she she used to always tell uh, Chappie James that you know hey don't go searching or knocking on the door of opportunity and when it answers you don't have the time to say you know hey give me give me two minutes I need to go pack my bags you need to be standing at the door and ready to charge yeah. through. And, you know, so that elevator speech is, uh, is huge. So I just wanted to highlight those two points. Here. The opportunity will pass you by very, very quickly. Yes. And somebody else is standing right behind you with their elevator speech mm-hmm. in hand. 
And if they make the case to the decision maker at the right time in the right place, you're going to be left holding an empty bag. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, you know, because uh, time is precious, yep. you know, especially during these days. Um, so thank you for sharing that, sir. Greatly appreciate it. Um, so let's talk about, um, you know, and when I put this one here, I was like, oh, man, <clears throat> you know, I'm going to hold on uh, to see uh, how you uh, respond to this one. So your, your biggest accomplishments, um, what would you say um, they'll classify as uh, your, your biggest accomplishments? So some of this came to me with clarity just a couple days ago when you and I were sitting over in Syracuse at mm-hmm. the 174th and we were sitting around a conference table. And there was me and you and uh, Colonel Fitzgerald was on the phone. And uh, we had General Donnell in the room and Colonel Sander. And we had uh, Colonel Roos from the Eastern Air Defense Sector. Mm-hmm. Colonel Bishop uh, from EADS came on the line a little bit later. Colonel McCrink from the 174th. And um, then who else was there? There was, uh, had, okay. And then we had Colonel Charlton who came in afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking around that table going, this is a, this is a high-speed group. Mm-hmm. This is a good group. This is a group that you and I built. Mm-hmm. This is a high-speed team. And I had a lot of satisfaction and pride looking around that table the other day uh, as we had our Air Executive Council meeting and looked at recruiting and retention and some other things. Um, so as I looked at that, I'm thinking, well, Walter Lippmann, uh, his final test said, the final test of a leader is that they leave behind him and other men and women the conviction and the will to carry on. Mm-hmm. You got to build a bench. Mm-hmm. And that team around that table the other day, I think hopefully if we can attribute at least partial credit um, that that would be a, one of my biggest successes is forming that team um, that, that we all sat around the table the other day. Hopefully I didn't miss any names. I think I got most everybody. Yeah, I think you got everyone. So, you know, yeah. Colonel Fitz uh, was, he was on the phone, was on the yeah. phone yeah. and uh, Senior, Senior Mass Sergeant Zodi was there. Uh, that's right. That's right. And uh, Colonel Geis was, 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 was there. in yes, the sir. corner. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that, that uh, hopefully I'm doing diligence to Walter Lippmann's final test there. Mm-hmm. Um, just like uh, my mentor, Bob Knopf, you know, Bob Knopf left behind a group of colonels that all progressed on, most of us to two-star generals, you know, Kevin Bradley, Don Deskins, Greg Semmel, Tom Owens, Tim LaBarge, Tony Basil, Tony German, uh, and, and others that, that Bob Knopf developed us all. And I look back on that and go on, good on you, Bob, um, mm-hmm. uh, General Knopf, uh, uh, testament. Um, I hope that I'm in the process of leaving behind a legacy of leaders that have the conviction in the world to carry on. Hmm. Um, also, I've been fortunate uh, to be chair of the Air National Guard Strategic Planning Systems uh, Steering Committee, mm-hmm. and we're having a formative hand in drafting the Air National Guard Strategic Master Plan, a 20-year look at where we're going in the future. Um, and hopefully that's going to be an enduring achievement, even if it changes several times in the next 20 years, which mm-hmm. it, by definition is guaranteed to, because mm-hmm. uh, that, that strategic match plan gets revisited and rewritten pretty much every two years. Um, and here's one that you and I have worked very hard on, um, achieving 100% end strength in the New York Air Guard for the yes. first time in a gazillion years. <laughs> it, that's a noteworthy accomplishment. Yes. <laughs> uh, and that's been, that's been a long road, but we focused on it. You and I provided the direction and the incentives. We've bought in plenty of lunches and pizza and sandwiches <laughs> for our, our teams out there. But the leadership and the recruiting and retention team did all, did all the hard work. Yes. And, and the people on the bases did all the work. So if your end strength and your retention is good, that indicates that you have a healthy organization. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a healthy organization. People tend to not join or they tend to leave unhealthy organizations. Mm-hmm. So we're at 101 
uh, knocking on the door of 102%, uh, and we're at 93% retention, I think um, that that's the indication of a healthy organization. And uh, I'm not taking credit for that, but maybe I'll say that I had a part in that and hmm. getting there. Uh, you and I did. Um, so developing that cohort of coworkers and, and professionals like you, Chief, uh, you've enriched my life, not only professionally, but also personally. And hopefully people like you and the people that I'm working with have made me a better person and a better leader. And it's an enduring group that I hope that will in some way, shape, or form that I'll stay in touch with for the rest of my life. Yes, sir. Um, I, I would look at those as some, some achievements that I can say that, that collectively we can say that, that, that was okay. That yes. worked out okay. Yes, sir. Uh, that's great. Um, you know, you mentioned a, um, a lot of uh, big accomplishments uh, or achievements um, that's uh, enduring. Um, and they're going to last, um, that, you know, um, you know, five, 10 years. So you've set this organization up, uh, you know, for future success. You know? And that's that's tough. That's tough when you're in leadership positions and you're in the grind every day. You you normally don't see the impact that you're making right then and there, yeah. you know, because that impact is going won't be felt for another five years, you know, after we're done, you know, with these positions. So I used to um, tell that, um, have that conversation with uh, another uh, officer that I respect a great deal, um, General Michelle Kilgore, um, when I served with her over at the 109th. And I, you know, I used to tell her, I said, ma'am, I said, the, the impact that we're making today, you know, is for five years down the road, five, 10 years mm-hmm. down the road. Um, so when you come back, sir, and you look back at the New York Air National Guard in five years, you know, hopefully you'll be able to look and say, wow, you know, I, I help them get there. Yeah, you have to get comfortable in these positions with deferred uh, gratification. Yes. Uh, because it, it, it doesn't always, well, very seldom comes with instant gratification. It's deferred gratification. And uh, you kind of got to get your hands yes. on that. That You may, you may not see the fruits of your labor. Mm-hmm. You know, we have said this several times that you and I could put our feet up and just kind of coast it Absolutely. out for the last three, four, five years and just say, it's not gonna, my retirement's going to be the same. My rank is going to be the same, and you know, I'm just going to coast it out. But the work that we're doing is not for Chief Richardson and General LaBarge. It's yes, for posterity. Yes. It's for the generations that follow us mm-hmm. so that they have a viable uh, mission set and a viable organization that survives us and survives future generations of us. And if we can set them up for success, then giddy up. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. No, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, sir. Wow. So when you take your boots off for the last time, uh, how do you want folks to remember Tim LaBarge? Well, hopefully as a caring leader, uh, there's many, many, many elements to leadership and there's books and volumes written on it. But the one thing that is an imperative that will cure all the other rails is the ability and the desire to care for your people and your mission. So I hope to remember it as a passionate, caring, visionary leader. Uh, who had a relentless pursuit of the optimal organization. And not just for the optimal organization's sakes, but so that the mission and the people, so that they can prosper. Uh, I hope to remember as a leader who was involved, uh, informed, educated, and fair and consistent in my decision making. Mm-hmm. And somebody who could always explain what we collectively were doing and why. Um, that's in an effort to optimize the good order and discipline, the morale and the workplace efficiency and all those leadership characteristics. But 
Um, and I've said this before that you got to be consistent. You got to be fair. If you want to tank them around an organization, just start inconsistently applying rules and processes. Favoritism can be a cancer to an organization. Yes. So I, I hope that I was, you know, caring, uh, that I was involved and I was fair and consistent and educated at least enough to the point where I could tell when people were BSing me hmm. and then I'm going to get into it. And then I'm going to get into the, I'm going to research it. I'm going to go to the subject matter experts and I'm going to get smart on it. And then I'm going to come back and say, okay, let's have a conversation. Yes. This is where I think we need to go. Tell me why I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And cause here's where we're going. Right. And I'm going to be very clear in the direction that we're taking. Um, hopefully, hopefully this is a challenge, uh, and that I was a careful and considerate listener. Uh, Epictetus was an ancient Greek philosopher who said we were given two ears and one mouth so we can listen twice as much as we speak. Hmm. And that's easier said than done. And this podcast is is an example of of how I'm not doing this very well (laughs) because I'm talking a lot. Um, But (laughs) it's really, really important uh, to be a a good listener. And hopefully I I did listen at the right time and the right places. And then you have to have the confidence as a leader to incorporate what you heard. Hmm. Um, but you got to hear it first and you got to be willing to hear it and you got to be willing to consider a contrarian point of view and a contrarian perspective. And even if it blows up your house of cards, you can get in your car going, hmm, maybe that person's got some truth there. Maybe we have to reconsider that. But you got to listen first. Mm-hmm. And lastly, I think maybe um, remembered as a critical thinker who wasn't afraid to take the road less traveled if that road less traveled benefited the organization. Hmm. And there's probably no better example of this than the people who preceded me, Tommy McGuire and Bob Knopf, who made a very difficult decision years ago to trade in F-16s in Syracuse for MQ-9s. Tough, tough decision. Mm -hmm. And now we're making decisions to pivot to places that may not have traditional airplanes associated with it. Might be cyber, might be space. Uh, It it, it might be, you know... uh, you know, either remotely piloted or automated type operations. It might be an Intel um, operation. Um, so you kind of, hopefully, I was a critical enough thinker to not just dismiss those things, but consider them uh, within the, the scope of where innovation and change and necessity is going to take us. Mm-hmm. So um, I, hope, I hope that at least there's a semblance of being remembered somewhat in that vein. Yes. No, outstanding, sir. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go back to uh, your the first podcast we had uh, together, uh, episode two. Um, and you talked about your um, decision making and how you those five things yeah. um, that you um, that you utilize when making a decision. And and uh, for the record, um, when I was the uh, the senior mentor um, at the uh, senior enlisted uh, legal orientation course with my flight, I actually shared that uh, with the members. I say, hey, you guys have to listen to this podcast. Um, you know, it could be a, so when you're making decisions, you know, these are those five things that Jim LaBarge actually utilizes in, in making decisions. And, uh, you know, and um, and that's being fair, consistent, uh, defendable, repeatable and grounded in AFI and regulation. So yeah. uh, I don't think you can go wrong, you know, if you uh, use that as your as a litmus test um, when when making decisions. And that gives you a place to start. Yes. You'll come out of that calculation with a place to start. And then from there, you start considering accommodations. Okay, so this is where I came out of that calculation, but what accommodations do I need to make to optimize the mission and the people? And then you got to move left or right as necessary. You just have to make sure that when you do it, that you have a reason for doing it and that you can repeat it. Mm. 
And that, that can be hard because accommodations have to be made. You can't be that rigid, but that fair, consistent, repeatable, defendable, grounded in a policy or regulation, it allows you to come out with a baseline that you start the conversation with yes. and, it, and, it, and engenders at least some semblance of consistency. Yeah, absolutely, sir. So, and uh, folks have heard me say it before, um, the, the last portion of what you uh, mentioned, sir, uh, listen, learn, uh, then lead. Mm-hmm. That was extremely important. Yeah, true. Yeah. All right. Did you say you, you use that at, at, am I getting a royalty check? From you that? are. Yeah, okay. yes, sir. Just, just wondering. Yeah, so. Yes, sir. <laughs> part of my retirement plan. It's part of your retirement plan, so checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, what can we do uh, to continue to carry on your legacy and to strengthen the New York Air National Guard? So um, one word, Chief, one word. It's respect. Hmm. It, it, and, and I think that in some cases, this is missing from so many dynamics uh, and, and respect. Um, I would say holistically, you have to. This is, this is another trite expression, but I'll get into a little more detail. You have to treat people with respect. You have to respect your people enough uh, to treat them with consistent and fair applications of your leadership decisions. You just talked about that at length. Um, do not entertain inconsistency or favoritism. Just don't. Hmm. Um, and so we just talked about that in the last couple of minutes yes, about sir. how to get there. You should respect your people enough to be able to defend your decisions. Because if you can't defend it, if you can't explain the why, you should consider changing your position. Because there's a good chance that if you can't explain it yourself, that, that then you're probably wrong. Mm-hmm. Because I'm the boss is not defending your position. Mm-hmm. It's wrong and it's lazy. Yes. That's not a defense. You should respect your people enough to approach their inputs and their suggestions and their ideas with a healthy dose of skepticism. Make them defend their position. Make them mm-hmm. convince you that this is a good thing. And a healthy dose of skepticism in leadership positions is a healthy thing. It's a good thing. Everybody, everybody is working an angle. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a reality. You kind of got to figure out what the angle is so that you can figure out where this would take your organization and your people in the first and second and third order effects. So you kind of got to figure that out before you sign on for it. Um, what are the risks to saying yes? And you should carefully consider those risks as you work towards getting to yes. Hmm. I, I almost say, and I'm, I'm not willing to say this out loud or write, carve it in stone, but you should almost start with no as your default position. Hmm. Now, th- th- that's arbitrary, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm just saying that for effect. But if you kind of tend towards that and then work towards yes, with your eyes wide open, and somewhere in there, you'll, you'll figure out that this is a good thing with, with uh, orders of magnitude benefits for the organization, or you can figure out why this could go way south. And the risks of going way south are something where you got to go, hey, it's worth it because of the benefit that we could gain, or nope, that, that could really leave some scar tissue that we can't recover from. So um, you should respect your people enough to engage them face-to-face. Yes. Get off the digits. Uh, get off the electronic means of communication and come out from behind the electronic shield. If you can't have knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye conversations, difficult conversations in, all, in order to hold people accountable, you most certainly are going to struggle as a leader, as a commander, as a supervisor. Tell people difficult news face-to-face and don't do it on a Friday. 
don't do it on a Friday. And that can be hard. You know, people are very comfortable with electronic communication. There's a whole lot of indemnification that goes with saying something over an email or a text message or even a phone line. You know, you will say things over text message that you that you may not say face to face because there could be some physical consequences to saying everybody's 10 foot tall in an email Mm -hmm. and it's not a good leadership construct. You should respect people enough to embrace our differences. Diversity is our secret sauce. It's our strength. It's our secret weapon and not just cultural diversity, but diversity of thought and opinion. And this is where you start growing as a leader to consider those other perspectives, those other cultures, those other organizations, those other ways of governing to say, hmm, that, that, that could work for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, we've got to respect people enough to embrace our differences. Just because you have a different worldview doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um, and there could be uh, parsing out some very good things from those things. Um, respect your people to listen intently. I talked about just, just a minute ago about listening intently. Um, nobody... Nobody, general statement, wants to go through their careers or their lives anonymously. Um, Give your people meaning by listening and respecting their inputs. Hmm. Even if you don't incorporate them, just the fact that you listen to them, they'll be like, well, at least Chief Richardson listened to me. And and you may see little gems of their inputs that work their way into into your decisions and into your policies. But nobody wants to be anonymous. And it's important to recognize people. It's important to say hi to them. It's important to coin them. But most importantly, it's important to listen to them with eye contact and square shoulders and a straight back and go, hmm, that's a good point. Or that one's not going to work for us. Here's why. But thanks for your input. And next time you got a good thought, come and see me again and, and we'll work it in there. That will make your, that will bolster morale like you can't believe. If people think that that they're important enough for Chief Richardson to go up and approach them, it, it, it means a tremendous amount. That's sure. respecting them. Hmm. You should respect uh, your people enough to spend time researching, forming, articulating, and promulgating a vision, right? Hmm. You just talked about yes, this. Sir. You got to know where you're going. Without vision, we perish. You will never, ever hit your goals or your targets if you don't know what you're aiming at. Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Hmm. So you, hmm. you've got to spend the time figuring out where you're going to go, what's within the realm of the possible, what's aspirational, what's achievable, and, and, and getting people on board with that. And then you got to get it out there. This podcast is one way of doing that. Hmm. There's lots of ways of communicating with people. This is a very powerful way and an innovative way, and I congratulate you on that. No, um, thank you, sir. Um, you should respect your people enough to be prepared to address them in any forum, uh, from an audience of one to an audience of several thousand. Anytime that you're talking to an audience, they've given you the gift of their attention. Mm. Do not, do not waste it. <laughs> say something pithy. Say something relevant. Say something aspirational. Say something that's motivational. Say something. <laughs> but make it so that at some point, Everybody in the audience will walk away with a little talking point that they thought Chief Richardson or General LaBarge was speaking to me with that point, mm-hmm. and it will resonate. And it, uh, so don't yeah. waste that. 
and we already talked about respect him enough to not be an ass, pardon my language, um, <laughs> but we talked about that. I think it's just really important to be, to have a respectful dialogue yes. and a respectful interaction and, and a respectful, uh, even when people have gotten outside the lines and, and, and exhibited some challenging behaviors or, um, you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's their behavior that is compromising, not the person. Mm -hmm. And, um, so be respectful of that. And, uh, lastly, respect people enough to thank them for their role in getting us. And in this case, me to this point. Mm -hmm. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to say, um, thanks to everybody. Yes, sir. Who, who, you know, from my family, uh, to my friends, to my coworkers, to my mentors, and to all the leaders out there and the people that I've worked with for helping me have a, uh, hopefully, at least in some way, shape, or form, a successful 39 career career. So, um, so let me double back down and say it all comes down to respect. respect. It's one word. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We've had that conversation before. Yeah. And, um, you know, you and I both agree yeah. that the Air Force Corps values are all encompassing, you know, but... Yeah, and you've said it before. If, if we can add it a fourth yeah. one, that it would be respect. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I would agree with that. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, now, I got a story about uh, uh, respect. Uh, when I was um, part of the uh, Maryland Air National Guard, um, I was guard bumming, and I was actually working as a contractor uh, for a pilot program uh, called the Operation Challenge Military Youth Corps. Um, and this program was a six-month-in-residence program that took 16- to 18-year-old uh, at-risk youth uh, who have uh, dropped out of high school. Um, and it gave them a, a pseudo-discipline, military-style discipline, mm -hmm. um, along with the ability to get their GED uh, to try to change them into productive citizens. Um, and, and me... Um, when you first, these kids first come off the bus, you know, the first thing that I wanted to do and a lot of the squad leaders uh, did the same thing was is not show them their respect and immediately start thinking that we were uh, drill instructors mm -hmm. and yelling in their face and screaming in their face. And, and what did they do? They shut down mm -hmm. um, because they came from an area where they had no discipline. Um, and so, um, you know, um, trying to um, infuse that discipline to them uh, right off the bat, uh, they were shutting down uh, big time. And, and me, myself, I, I looked at myself and I said, how come I'm not reaching uh, these young kids? I've come from where they are. You know, I, I know what they're going through. Um, I, I've been there. How come I'm not reaching them? So I changed my approach and I stopped hmm. the, the yelling. Mm -hmm. I start talking stern, but I start showing them uh, respect. Um, and when I start showing them a little bit of respect, mm. it came back, you know, five times fold, um, you know, and then I had a, a such an easy time uh, relating to them and breaking through because, you know, that's what you want. You know, when you are uh, developing folks or you're trying to change behavior, that you have to be able to reach that member. You have to be confident in yourself and your ability to meet them where they're at and then walk them along that path for that journey with you. Um, so that, that was a huge lesson that I learned um, early in my career. Um, and I've been uh, following, um, you know, that philosophy of respect um, ever since. So my first job in the Air Force after pilot training was instructor pilot. And um, I flew in a tandem seated T-37 with one person sitting beside the other. Mm -hmm. And these were beginning pilots. Uh, you know, this is their, some people with very little if no flying time, and, and we're sitting side by side in this little jet trainer, which was a lot of fun to fly. And I, I figured out very quickly 
that um, uh, that there was a, a way to get through to people when I really needed to get through to them. Some people in the airplane would yell and scream. And in some cases, I've even heard stories where they would reach over and grab the student pilot's oxygen mask and, and bang their head around <laughs> going, you got to do this, you got to do that, or stop doing this or stop doing that, yelling and screaming at them. Guess what that student pilot did? Hmm. They would they would lock up, lock like up, rig- down. they would shut <laughs> right down. <laughs> and when when it got a little bit testy out there in the airplane and a little bit scary, and if I really wanted to make a point, you know how I would do it? I would call them by their first name as quietly as I could. I'd say, Denny, pull the power back and put your nose down. Now, now push the power in, level your wings, and, and, and fly out of the stall. And it, but when I'd say, you know, quietly, gently say it, but using their first name, because it was instead of, hmm. you know, Lieutenant Smith or Lieutenant Jones, if I would say, hey, John, you know, we're about to hit the ground, do this. And, and that got them... To like, oh, he just called me by my first name, which is different. Hmm. So it got their attention, but I would say it gently, and and boy, they would respond to that much, much more than me grabbing their oxygen mask and banging their head off the canopy. That just <laughs> shut them down. Yes. <laughs> so so I, maybe that was just my nature. Uh, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but that's what I found was most effective. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, sir, and uh, we got you. Respect. In respect. All right. Oh, true that. Yes, sir. <laughs> So what's next for Tim LaBarge? Uh, well, I'm not really sure just yet. and I, I really haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but the aphorism says you should spend the first third of your life learning, the second third of your life earning, and the last third of your life returning. Hmm. Learning, earning, returning. So I, I think I'm getting into the returning part. Um, and the first person that I got to spend some time returning to is my lovely wife, Petra. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she is, she is an enormously uh, uh, powerful uh, advocate and wingman and leader in her own right and so supportive of me and uh, never once has complained about the fact that I spend a lot of time away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, she completely gets it. Uh, doesn't mean it's optimal. Mm-hmm. So returning starts with... Returning to spend some time with her. We're going to take a trip to Alaska with some friends of mine from Syracuse. We're going to go uh, up uh, to Fairbanks and then work our way down through the state and then get on a cruise there in uh, end of May, beginning of June. Nice. Uh, we have three grandkids and um, uh, Taylor, TJ, and Miles, and we're, we're going to spend as much time with them as we can. And it's going to be great to just be able to say, hey, I, c- I can make that. Mm-hmm. And, and let's get on a plane and fly to Virginia and, and see, see the kids. Right? Nice. Um, there's some opportunities out there uh, in academia or business. There, there are some opportunities, uh, and I, I'm not stiff-arming those right now. I'm just not focused on them. Mm-hmm. That'll come to me, and I, I'm really interested in continuing the returning piece, uh, but I don't really want to be burdened with a big schedule right up front because if I just jump into something else, my wife's going to go. <laughs> and I'm going to say to myself, you know, hey, you know, there's – it's it's the returning part. Let's mm-hmm. spend some time returning. Um, and there's lots of ways to return. Uh, certainly with uh, family, friends, community, fraternal organizations. Pater- you know, uh, um, and um, and I'm giving. I have this this thought that's just kind of come to me about starting a podcast, something like Voyages Through Leadership or. <laughs> 
treks through leadership or travels through leadership. Why don't you just use journeys through leadership? Oh, hey, there you go. This thought just came to me. Maybe I'll I'll start a podcast. Oh, that's good stuff, sir. uh, uh, Learning, earning, returning. I'm getting into the returning part. Got you, sir. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, Wow. Uh, This has been fun. Yeah, uh, this is this has been awesome, sir. And um, you know, sometimes I gotta pinch myself because I just had a front seat to this. So yeah. uh, this is uh, <laughs> this is amazing. So uh, closing comments. Uh, what closing thoughts, messages uh, would you like to leave uh, with our listeners today? Um, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to just give me a few minutes here to absolutely, uh, sir. To kind of, I'm going to I'm going to read something that that I've I've. Uh, it's a long Teddy Roosevelt, the Strenuous Life, April of 1899. And it's a long speech, and I'm just going to read an excerpt. So just just entertain it for a minute, and I'll I'll get into my final thought. So um, we all know Teddy Roosevelt. He's on Mount Rushmore. And um, um, this was a strenuous life speech. An excerpt. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success which comes— not to the man and woman who desires a mere easy peace, but to the man and woman who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil, or who out of these wins a splendid ultimate triumph. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much, because they lived in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat." If we are to be a really great people, we must strive in good faith to play a great part in the world. We cannot avoid meeting great issues. The timid man, the lazy man, the man who distrusts his country, the over-civilized man who has lost the great fighting masterful virtues, the ignorant man and the man of dull mind whose soul is incapable of feeling the mighty lift that thrills stern men with empires in their brains— All these, of course, shrink from seeing the nation undertake its new duties, shrink from seeing us build a navy and an army adequate to our needs, shrink from seeing us do our share of the world's work by bringing order out of chaos. These are the men who fear the strenuous life, who fear the only national life which is really worth leading. That's an excerpt from a very long speech. Now, I need to be clear that I'm not saying that I was even remotely successful at leading the strenuous life. But to the extent that we at least effort to lead the strenuous life, it will allow us a modicum of satisfaction that we at least attempted to live our lives and spend our careers in the service of others. Hmm. Lead the strenuous life. And that seems like a good way to wrap this whole thing up. Wow. Outstanding, sir. Uh, thank you very much uh, for sharing that. Uh, you know that was uh, that was truly, truly inspiring. Um, I couldn't uh, think of a more appropriate way uh, to close out uh, season one, sir. I thank you uh, for your transparency today and for being a real general officer. I also want to take this time uh, to show my sincerest gratitude to you for being a generational talent who led with dignity, courage, accountability, and more importantly respect. You have been consistent um, in displaying fairness no matter what or who you were dealing with. I have nothing but admiration and a respect for you, sir. Thank you and Godspeed. Chief, right back at you. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
Well, teammates, another successful recording session in the books. A shout out to the person behind the scenes, Mrs. Jackie Lyons, for keeping us organized and on point. Until the next JTL episode, I leave you with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Thank you, General, for keeping the Air National Guard enterprise moving forward and for finishing strong and running through the tape. Until the next time, Chief out.